0: Let us remember Philip Sutton, Australia's one of Australia's real climate heroes. Philip died just recently, and so today we're going to have a quick look at Philip. This is the latest episode of Climate Conversations, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. Philip Sutton was the epitome of the climate champion, and I use the term was. Sadly, I use the term was, because Philip died just last week, and that was the week beginning Monday, June 13. Philip was recognised just yesterday, and yesterday was Saturday, June 18, at a monthly meeting of the Victorian Climate Action Network, a meeting at which he was meant to speak and talk about geoengineering and protecting those unable to protect themselves. The can organisers were somewhat worried about whether they should have the meeting or not, but then it was agreed that Philip would actually like the meeting to go ahead The meeting began with personal reflections from people about Philip. Some knew him well, some not at all. One who did know him well was David Spratt, who in 2008 published the book Climate Code Red, which he and Philip had written together. Climate Code Red was the book for many people, introducing them to the rigors and threats of climate change. David was at the meeting and spoke very briefly about Philip. This is what David Spratt said at yesterday's VCAN meeting and he pointed out that a longer piece about Philip's life and work will be published in Renew Economy this coming week.
1: Philip was a really big picture thinker. He was a fearless provocateur uh, and a pioneer. Uh, he, could, he could be irascible, uh, sometimes with good reason, uh, generous with his time, um, a tireless networker and irreplaceable.
0: Climate Conversations was able to interview Philip and we were talking about the climate emergency, something he had played a key role in organising, and we were in the RMIT library when suddenly we were told there was a fire emergency and we had to leave the building. It seemed ironic that we were talking about the climate emergency and suddenly here was a real emergency right in our laps. Let's have a listen to that interview now. The book that you co-authored with David Spratt in 2008 was called Climate Code Red, and while that was accurate then and still is now, that wording has been appearing, or has appeared a lot just recently at COP26, so that was somewhat prescient, so why did you settle on that title?
1: Well, I think it was David who who chose it, but it was basically picked up from the kind of medical emergencies or something other hospitals have their various codes and uh, I don't know whether we actually accurately picked it up but you know red seemed to be danger so you know code red was a a danger code and uh, so then you just stick climate on the front (laughs) so (laughs) I, I don't know whether anybody picked it up from our book or whether it was just that they reinvented it um you know I mean it could have been either way yeah yeah
0: you were at the recent meeting of the Victorian Climate Action Network, and you talked about a new campaign you have, which is called Climate Rescue, and you, have, you point to three fundamentals around which the program is built, so can we talk quickly about those? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, can you tell me what Climate Rescue means, like why that title?
1: Well... I guess the thing is that what what's happened is that we've we've settled into a pattern, a holding pattern with climate action, which is that we, quote, know that what we need to do is reduce emissions. Now, the thing is that that was an accurate description of action back about 40, 50 years ago, um, but it's no longer an accurate description of what we need to do if we actually want to protect anything that we currently see that's uh, being threatened. So people of the Pacific Islands or coral reefs or the Amazon forest or protecting you know the, the ice sheets in the Greenland or West Antarctic. Those are all things which are actually under threat right now. And so the, what we were trying to find was, or what I was trying to find was a, a term which would imply um, something which was very active and was focused on actually getting, you know, whatever we care about, people or, or nature, whatever, out of danger. That they're in right now and that of course will be much worse in the future if we don't act effectively but um, to, to not act I mean the notion of a rescue is that you you have an idea of who you're trying to rescue if you don't rescue all the people that you set out to to save then you say that we had an attempt at rescue and we failed and you just recognize the reality that you didn't do a good enough job but you don't you don't praise yourself for having gone out on the rescue you praise yourself for the results of the rescue
0: well, can you talk to me quickly about those three po- the three pillars of that plan?
1: Okay. Um, what happened was that we the the scope of the climate rescue exercise is huge, and because we have to deal with the threats that now exist, we we have some extra challenges that are not normally recognized. So the first part of it was to actually anchor people very clearly on what it is that they're trying to protect who and what they're trying to protect. So that was the the first part which is protect the climate vulnerable, which means a process of finding out who or or what in the case of um, other living things or uh, ecosystems, who and what is threatened, what would they need to be secure? And what would we need to do by when to actually achieve that security? And that's the first part of it. So you anchor on what you're trying to protect. Then the next step is we have to recognise now that the Earth is actually too hot. I mean seriously too hot. And so that that's actually now part of the problem. It's not just a matter of getting emissions down to zero, which we have to do at emergency speed, but we also have to get the, the excess temperature down to a safe level at emergency speed. So we need we need to get the temperature down to a safe level, um, as well as getting the emissions down to zero. So the next part of the next anchor point was the notion of looking um, directly at the question of whether you can do fast cooling. Now it turns out that we've known, scientists have known for some time, that there are methods that at the point of deployment could actually cool the Earth's atmosphere down to a safe level probably within the space of something as short as one year once you start deploying it. But we we haven't really wanted to look at that in the past for several different reasons. One is that we were anxious not to give a free pass to the fossil fuel industry for obvious reasons. Um, We weren't sure about the safety of these methods, etc. But the problem now is that well, I think we really need to find out whether we can make make these fast cooling methods safe because the, the damage that will be done to people, other ecosystem species um, and earth systems uh, elements is going to be so huge if we can't get fast near-term cooling that we'll be in terrible trouble. So that's the second um, key anchor point is fast cooling. Before
0: department. you go on, Philip, can you explain to me what one of those fast cooling mechanisms might be?
1: Okay, at the moment there's experimentation happening on the Great Barrier Reef to see whether you can do what they call marine cloud brightening and so what what's involved in that is you take seawater, you just spray it up in the air using, well, in fact what they're using is the kind of machine that um, is used in the alpine areas for, for snow making. In this case you just pump up seawater and make a fine spray um, and then the uh, the water evaporates out. The, the salt crystals form, and they float through up into the cloud layer, and then help form a form or strengthen the clouds over the Great Barrier Reef. And the clouds, of course, then, um, if they're the right sort of cloud, will then. Um, reflect much or well, some somewhat more of the um, solar radiation back out to space and so it, it's it's a way of keeping the surface of the ocean a bit cooler than it otherwise would have been so that's that's one method which can actually be scaled up um, to a global level fairly astonishing notion but um, but, but that could be done <clears throat> another method which is fairly familiar is the um, uh, use of, of aerosol particles in the uh, upper atmosphere and the stratosphere as as another uh, way of reflecting a a tiny proportion of the um, incoming solar radiation back to space and that also then cools the atmosphere and therefore the oceans and therefore the world.
0: That's all known as geoengineering isn't it? That's right. So does that have unintended consequences?
1: Um, it's likely that everything we do will have un- unintended consequences. Um, one of the way of reducing unintended consequences to the absolute minimum um, is to actually do um, effective experimentation. And that's what I think that we really need to do right now at emergency speed because we need to find out... We need to apply these methods, um, if we can, at emergency speed. We need the research to enable us to find out whether we can make safe methods of doing so. Um, and so the answer to your question of other unintended consequences we have to actually design those those consequences out of the system and find out what they would have would have been if we hadn't um, done effective research
0: the last of those three pillars is delivering climate rescue so can you talk to me about that
1: okay so that's when you in a sense you pull, pull the whole thing together and so um, once you know who and what you're trying to protect, when they need to be protected by. And I can tell you, for example, with the Pacific Islands, if you want to save the Pacific Islands, we need to get the Earth's temperature down probably under about half a degree of warming and, and preferably uh, back to normal. Um, and, and that will need to be delivered um, well before mid-century. So in other words, that's in less, much less than 30 years. So, In other words, it's an incredibly near-term prospect. So, OK, delivering climate rescue is going to be a gigantic task as we have to obviously get rid of the use of fossil fuels and other um, emission sources. Um, so we've got to get to zero emissions. We've got to do that without massive offsetting <laughs> uh, because... Um, there's just simply not going to be enough um, natural bushland that can be restored to actually take out enough of the excess carbon dioxide out of the air. So we need to restore and protect nat- natural systems and protect agriculture and also find additional methods. So to deliver all that in time is going to be a huge physical task that will take... Um, has, well, it can't. Af- we can't afford for it to take too many years um, and so that, that has to be delivered at emergency speed. Now, in the past um, couple of years, we've had a campaign running around the world um, to get declarations of climate emergency. And this has been very, very important in, in getting the notion of an emergency problem in people's minds. But the, the critical challenge now is to switch that into, to stepping off from where we got to with that campaign. We need to now, um, focus on getting governments into emergency action mode um, rather than just merely recognising the problem.
0: I was going to ask you about the emergency speed thing, because you had something to do with, oh, I understand, something to do with the climate emergency movement, didn't you?
1: Um, yeah, I did actually, um, yep. So no, you,
0: played I, a, you played a key role in seeing the city of Dearborn introduce the climate emergency?
1: The the actual um, decision or the, the 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 impetus to to get uh, Darabin to. Um, uh put a, a motion before their council on the climate emergency uh, was something that was worked out b- between Adrian Whitehead and, and uh, Trent McCarthy, who is a councillor, that um, I'd worked out the notion of, of getting councils to do that a couple of years earlier in some work that I'd been doing, which, which Adrian was aware of. So when he, when he saw the opportunity, then uh, he was in a position to, to really just sort of jump in and make it happen. So what is Not so much make it happen, but, you know, sort of encourage it
0: yeah. to happen. So where is Adrian now? Is he still there?
1: Um, Adrian's um, working with a a group called CASE, which is um, Community Action and Council Action on Climate uh, uh, Emergency. Um, And so they've got a very useful website, um, which you can find, CASE Online, um, which will give people a lot of uh, very useful tools for getting emergency campaigns running within the councils and then ramping that up to the state and, and federal government levels.
0: Do you think councils who've, who have who had declared a climate emergency really understand what that means?
1: Um, they certainly haven't done as much as as I had thought would be the the logical consequence of of those declarations. Um, I think part of the problem is that um, I mean in order to go into emergency mode, you really need to get the community Um, the community needs to be aware that it needs to be in emergency mode. So you get this sort of bootstrapping problem of, you know, which comes first, you know, should the council lead or should the community lead or whatever. Um, I think that, in fact, what you do is people within the community need to raise it with the councils, which they've been doing. Then the council needs to feed back to the community, yes, we're going to take this seriously. And at that point, they have to actually flag that they are investigating what... Could be done to really ramp up the speed and scale of action and it's it's obvious at the local government level when you haven't got state governments and the, and the national government on side that a, a council can, can what it can do is going to be somewhat limited quite, quite severely limited by um, the policies of the state government and the federal government but councils are close to their community, so they can actually help mobilise their own community and reach out to other councils to, for them to mobilise their communities to actually start to engage and, put, crudely speaking, put pressure on, on the state governments and then ultimately the federal government um, to, to get this emergency mode of action in place. So I, th- I think you can ramp it up, you can sort of bootstrap it and go through a cycle of improvement uh, on a very fast turnaround.
0: You talk a lot about emergency speed. So, what does that really mean? Like what's emergency speed mean?
1: If you if you look at it's a rather unfortunate example, but if you if you look at the um, economic mobilisation during World War Two, um, in the space of about a year, um, each country that sort of entered the war would redirect its economy to produce. Completely different suite of, of, you know, of products. In that case, obviously, war, war material. Um, but the thing was that they they were able to physically re- repurpose their economy and redirect it in the space of as short as one year, and then the production process that flowed from that lasted, let's say, another four or five years. Um, but the scale was, was incredible. Now, my my um, belief would be that if, if we were to approach anything like, like that degree of dedication of changing what the economy does, we, we could be putting in place all the zero emissions technology we need. We could be putting in place all the carbon dioxide drawdown technology we need. And we could be um, doing the fast cooling as well. And we'll, we'll also have to manage now that we've left it so late... Um, a lot of protection from extreme weather events and so on. um, But all of that, I think, can be done um, within the space of um, 10 years. Uh, If if we were really, really onto it, we could probably even do it in the space of five or six years.
0: Talking about uh, clearly your campaign Climate Rescue, you said the idea is to start the campaign in Victoria because we can and then go national and global. So why Victoria?
1: (laughs) Oh, well.
0: Um, you, you live I, here, I suppose.
1: I just happen to live here and, <laughs> and other people that I know happen to live here and when you've got people that you know and you've got networks and you can, you know, you can work together and something can grow out of it, it's, it's something that could start in any other part of the world and, and hopefully you know, other people will do that. Um, but when it comes to kicking off a new idea, um, often you just have to start where you can.
0: So where are you up to in terms of implementing the idea?
1: Okay, well I'm um, I've been doing a fair bit of um sort of uh, background planning so that we've got a, a fairly clear idea of what needs to be done and because the the issue is pretty complicated and and we need to challenge quite a few of the standard practices within climate campaigning um, that preparation i think has been very very necessary but i've now for the last um probably a little bit less than a month i've I've been in the mode where i've started to reach out to people and uh, start to engage in a conversation about getting the campaign going and um, how people might be able to identify parts of the campaign that they could pick up on. So so that's the phase at the moment. We've also got um, some connections um, that have developed on an international level, partly through the, uh, we were lucky to, to get a uh, funding grant. Um, and so uh, the granting body uh, had some international connections. So um, we're sort of following that up to see if we can establish the campaign in a, in a few other countries as well. I mean obviously the the intention is to get it global, so it's two hundred countries would need to be involved um, but uh, once again you start where you can
0: <laughs> start where you can it's a good idea so do you feel the idea has some traction
1: i do actually um, it's i mean it's going to be it's going to be a very tough thing to get the campaign started because we're as I say we're challenging a number of um, uh, standard practices within climate campaigning and and Doing that's never easy or comfortable or whatever. Um, But I actually do. And I think the reason is because um, people are are really torn at the moment between, not putting it too finely, but between hope and despair. Um, Because the climate issue is obviously becoming incredibly near-term serious. Um, The level of action from governments is partial but nowhere near what's needed so it's it's very easy to feel very very deflated about well not deflated that's that's too passive I mean to be crushed by by the inadequacy of what's going on Um, and so I think another thing is that people are fearing that there actually there are really no solutions to the near-term climate warming problems that we have right now now that as isn't true technically, it may have to, It may be true if we can't make the methods safe to use, the fast cooling methods safe to use. But if we can, then there are still things we can do to actually get relief from, from the near-term heating. And I think that, to cut a long story short, I think the reason why this campaign might succeed is it's our, actually our best hope for doing our best job. And I think that that will start to appeal to people.
0: Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the success of this program?
1: Um, I guess after quite a few decades of working on climate, I'm, I'm what I would call realistic in the sense that whatever happens is what happens. In other words, I don't believe in the idea of you know guaranteed success or guaranteed failure but i can tell you how you can assure failure and that's by not trying so by doing approach, nothing <laughs> by do, well not i mean people aren't doing nothing they're doing they're doing things but if you don't aim to actually produce a safe climate to re, you know to to restore a safe climate then what you're doing is you're agreeing to stay in a non-safe condition so in other words the the, the 1.5 degree warming won't save the the Pacific Islands. Um, and so anchoring on that is, is to actually commit yourself to flooding the Pacific Islands. It's just a matter of which year, you know, sees the last of the low-lying islands go underwater. Um, but if you anchor on actually restoring a safe climate, um, then there is some chance that we can succeed at that. I actually believe that there is a pathway through to a future that actually is a a hell of a lot better than people are envisaging, even after the effects of our campaigning that we currently engage in.
0: Philip, are you optimistic or pessimistic generally about the climate movement?
1: Um, I I I think that human beings have an amazing capacity, I I once had a friend who said, oh look, I, I, I think human beings haven't evolved to be able to solve complex problems. And I spent a bit of time trying to work out whether that was true and came to the conclusion that I didn't think it was true. I think that humans in fact have the capability of getting themselves out of some very serious holes. And so in that sense, I'm optimistic about our potential to do things. Whether we whether we, that potential is realised just simply depends on whether we organise ourselves around tapping the potential. So if we don't do that, then I'd say I'm pessimistic about the results. But if we do try to tap people's capabilities, which I think are enormous, then I'm in fact optimistic. So I, I have a... I have a sort of a dual approach which is strategic optimism and tactical pessimism mm-hmm. I, I like to know what's going to go wrong if we if we if we stuff it up if we don't if we don't act effectively if we don't do anything I want to know exactly how bad it's going to be because that then provides the motivation to apply you know that human capability to actually solving the problem and in in that in that phase where you you know setting out to solve the problem, I'm actually quite optimistic about our capacity.
0: Yeah. How do people get involved with climate rescue?
1: Um, if, if they uh, contact me, um, uh, my if you Google Philip Sutton, uh, you'll find that my email address is on the web all over the place. So it's uh, philip.sutton at green, that's the colour, hyphen, not underscore, Innovations uh, with an S on the end. ASN. au, and uh, I'll be very keen to have a talk with anybody who's interested.
0: So, what do you need people to do?
1: Um, well, uh, we've got a ridiculously long list of things that need doing, but the the sort of the core at the moment is that we we're um, doing work on identifying the needs of the climate vulnerable. Who you know. We, which people and which um, ecosystems and species are most threatened. So there's kind of what you might somewhat scientifically orientated work that people could do in that area. We're doing work at the moment on um, the fast cooling issue to see how you could apply the COVID um, vaccine regulation and, and promotion um, approach to the fast cooling issue. So that's a kind of a, uh, a, a technical piece of work. And then the largest amount of work really, I suppose, is developing uh, country profiles to see which organisations are active around the world in each country, and which ones would, would be the most interested in taking on the climate rescue approach? And then the other thing is to start working with um, local councils to to get some of them across the line into climate emergent into climate um, action mode, climate emergency action mode, rather than merely just in the sort of the recognising of the problem. So there's there's a lot of work at, at at the local level, and then at at the global kind of research level.
0: Philip, is there something else you'd like to say about climate rescue?
1: Um, well, it's an interesting point. Um, it's, it's getting me out of bed in the morning. It's, it's given me personally a, a great sort of boost to think that we can actually get, you know, have a, have a crack at this. So um, I don't know. if, if it, I'm hoping that if it works for me, it might work for others. But uh, I guess we'll see when we try.
0: Philip, that's probably all I need to know at this point, so I, pr- I appreciate your time. That's great. Yeah, th-
1: thanks very much.
0: Oh, what a shame. I'm certainly going to miss that comforting and reassuring voice, and the world's going to miss that sweeping and far-seeing knowledge. Thank you, Philip. Now, please don't forget to check out the episode notes, as Philip made a reference to Case, and there'll be a link in there for that. Also, Davis Bratt made reference to a video interview he had recorded for breakthrough and there'll be a link in the notes for that thanks so much for your company and until we talk again please take care stay safe and be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle and i look forward to seeing you back at climate conversations